a lot of them. Ice on me, I'm popping. Try and get like me. Alrighty, we are live. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Um, really excited today. We've got Ian Gaffney, the co-founder of Emmy's Organics, incredible cookie and confectionery business, uh, baked goods company. I've known about you guys forever, um, and I'm a huge fan of yours too. I've, we've been uh, I've been lucky enough to to be in a few clubhouse rooms with you, and just to hear more about your story, it's super inspirational. And there's just so many nuggets of wisdom. So thanks for joining us, Ian. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. So for those of you that don't know Emmys, uh, I remember the first time I had it was probably in a Starbucks or, you know, at a cafe. Um, but, you know, your cookies are, are really incredible. But uh, Ian, tell us, you know, where are you from? How did you get into uh, the food and beverage industry? Um, yeah, sure. So um, I'm from Ithaca, New York. So that's that's where I was born and raised. Um, I've lived in other places, but Ithaca's always kind of pulled me back, sort of like this vortex, um, which I've grown to to love over the years. Um, but uh, I'm from Ithaca. I'm based in Ithaca now with my wife, Samantha, um, who I co-founded Emmys with. And that's where we do all of our manufacturing. And that's where our headquarters are uh, for Emmys. Um, I sort of tell people that Emmys started gosh, it, for me at least, probably about 21 years ago. It wasn't when we founded the company, but that's when my own like health journey started with, with food. So um, when I was about 17 years old, I was diagnosed with autoimmune disease. And prior to that, I had a pretty unhealthy lifestyle, um, not just with like the food I ate, which was about fast food five days a week, but also with just the extracurricular activities I was getting into in high school. Um, and I got really sick when I was about 17 and hospitalized for like a week, um, and came out of it, um, you know, being told that I had this autoimmune disease and this condition that wasn't curable. And so I was like, well, that's pretty terrible. What can I do about it? And luckily at the time, my dad was, was, uh, had a girlfriend who was really interested in health foods and, and, you know, how it can treat and heal all these different, you know, illnesses. And she said, Hey, maybe you should look at your diet and cut out all the gluten and dairy and processed foods and, and fast food. And you shouldn't eat Subway and McDonald's all the time. And I was like, Oh, that sounds terrible, but I guess I'll give it a shot. And so, you know, I started kind of cutting out all that stuff, cut out gluten, cut out dairy. And pretty much overnight, I, I noticed uh, the differences. And so that was when I really made the choice to kind of go all in on, on treating my body better and eating healthier foods. And really, this was was about gluten for you, and just that transition from removing that from your your dietary, um, you know, oh, yeah. routine. Yeah, gluten. Yeah, gluten was a big one. Gluten and dairy were the big ones for sure. Um, and then it was really all about like cutting out processed foods and really focusing on eating whole foods. Um, so that was a big shift for me, definitely. Except I never, never, ever had an intention of getting into the food business. That wasn't what I wanted to do. That was like the least sexiest thing in, in my in my point of view of of what my future could be. You know, um, what what was your background? What you know, professionally, what were you doing prior? Um, well, I so I, I dropped out of high school when I was in about 11th grade and moved out to California with my brother and about six of our friends. And I really wanted to be like a famous DJ. Um, so I started DJing when I was about 13 years old. And um, I made some mixtapes and had done some studio work with some, you know, famous folks. And, and really, that was like my career path. I was like, this is it for me. Like, I'm going to 
I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do it in LA and then I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to do it in New York. So that was kind of like my, my chosen path at the time. What, um, what kind of genre of music? It was all over the board. So I really would DJ anything, but when I was producing and making music, it was strictly, you know, rap basically. So I did a mixtape that was in, oh my God, this is going to make me sound kind of old, but um, 2004, that was called Blue Eyes Meets bed -Stye. And it was like a mashup of Frank Sinatra and Biggie. And uh, well, Ian, you're, you're going to laugh. Um, I also was a rapper. I put out two albums really? with, a rap, with a hip hop group in college. So <laughs> that, that is amazing. Speaks That's to great. me personally. Um, yeah. Really interesting. That's awesome. So you were producing beats. Were you, yeah. you know, putting out, you know, music? Were you also uh, like a, like rapping at all? No, no, I, I wasn't. Okay. Rapping. I wasn't touching that. But um, yeah, I was DJing, making beats. And, um, you know, I had like a, a manager when I was in New York who was shopping beats around. Um, and the mixtape that I made at the time had, had gotten pretty popular. We sold that it was maybe like 15,000 copies just on the street, just like hand to hand. That's amazing. Um, and got <laughs> awesome. it. Yeah, it was, well, that was the time like before it was like stuff was downloadable, you know what I mean? Where it was all CDs, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it got written up about in like GQ a few times, Rolling Stone Magazine, Double um, XL, The Source. Um, you know, these were all kind of the popular magazines at the time and also online and, and it, and you know, it was being sold in kind of all the sort of famous like hip hop shops around the country. And I started DJing a lot in New York City. Like I was doing all the major clubs, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, 10 a.m. to 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning. And um, I think that lifestyle just kind of caught up to me with my health. So I couldn't really continue that. It wasn't sustainable, you know. Um, and so I started to kind of make this pivot towards graphic design because I had also taught myself how to graphic design and I got hired um, with his ad agency that was based in Long Island at the time um, to do design work there. And while I was doing that, um, I also was kind of playing around just with my own recipes in the kitchen. And this was probably like 2007, maybe. Um, and I came up with this coconut cookie recipe that was really good, but I wasn't like, I'm going to put this in a bag and sell it. It was just something that I like to enjoy. Um, and so sort of like fast forward many years later, um, I got really, really sick again, uh, had to move home, uh, for what I thought would be like a temporary time, maybe like six months to a year and, um, maintain my job in New York. So I was probably like one of the first people ever to be like working remotely. I was using AOL instant messenger. I don't know if you remember instant messenger. Of course. But, uh, yeah, so I would like log into Instant Messenger and like be chatting with my boss and we'd be like emailing files back and forth. And they were like super gracious and understood like the situation that I was in because I was I was really ill. Um, like my doctors at the time really were surprised that I wasn't dead yet based on how sick I was. Wow. Um, and so my bosses totally understood. They kind of let me do my thing from home in Ithaca, kept my apartment in New York because I just assumed I would be moving back. And then um, I met Samantha through a mutual friend and that was kind of it for me. I was like, I'm, I'm staying. Um, and then a few months later after we met, I'd actually showed her this cookie recipe. I was like, I want to make these for you. And so I made them for her. 
And she's like, wow, these are amazing. Maybe we should sell them at the farmer's market and start a business. And I was like, uh, start a food business. I guess so. Sure. I'll, I'll do it. Why not? Um, and so it was really for us, it was kind of like a, um, Hey, let's, let's pass the time during the summer while we each kind of straighten out our lives and figure out what we want to do. And I originally thought I was going to move back to New York. Um, and Samantha thought she was going to move to San Francisco or somewhere else. And, uh, you know, then the snowball effect started with, with Emmys. So, so I, I was looking on your guys' website and I see pictures of you guys in your mom's kitchen, making product together. Mm -hmm. uh, love that. Love being able to even just see those photos. So can you walk me through like uh, how it started at the farmer's market? Did you show up and were they boom, just selling out? Where did the snowball effect kind of hit where you were like, wow, this actually might be a real business that I should, you know, that we should go into full time. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, this, the farmer's market was like a huge success because um, the one that's in Ithaca is really, really popular. So there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of vendors that show up, um, you know, Saturday and Sunday It's on the waterfront. So it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's, I think it's one of the best farmers markets in the country. Um, just with like the variety of food, you know, the vendors, the farmers. Um, so for us, like, you know, we, we posted up at the farmer's market on Sundays. We would get down there at like 6 a.m. to like select our booth. It was so ridiculous. Um, and in the beginning, we were really focused on just providing like delicious, clean, simple, vegan, gluten-free food that was mostly raw. So it mostly followed like a raw food diet. We had coconut ice cream. We had almond flour cookies, we had the coconut cookies, we were making fudge, we had granola, cheesecake, like nut-based cheesecake. Um, I mean, it was insane. We probably had like 30 different items that we were selling at the farmer's market, you know? Except yeah. the one thing that really kind of like was our, you know, prime product, I guess, while we were down there was the coconut cookie. That was the thing that we sold the most of, that we could make in like a variety of flavors really easily. And also was like the most cost efficient because the cheesecake and the ice cream was really expensive to make and it costs a lot to sell. And so we didn't sell as much of that, but the cookies were simple. It was like, yeah, 50 cents or 75 cents for a cookie and people were all in, you know? So we sold like thousands of dollars of just those coconut cookies, like, you know, every, every weekend it seemed. Um, and so we started to like pare down what we were selling at the farmer's market. And we, we were there for probably like two or three years doing the farmer's market every summer. Um, and then it got every, to the every week, like once a week. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And, yep. and then did you end up quitting your job? Like when did you quit your job? I actually, my job actually let me go. Um, when they realized that I wasn't coming back to the office, they wanted to like, you know, sort of build this office culture, which I totally understood and respected. And they're like, Hey, if you're not coming back, then we think that we should part ways. And I was like, you know what? That's totally cool. I understand. I don't think I'm coming back to the city. Um, and so for me, I got my last day was December 31st, 2008. And we got the DBA for Emmys January 1st, 2009. Love that, dude. Love yep. that. And, and what I what I also want to say is two to three years of farmers markets, 2008, 2009. It's 2021. Not a lot yep. of businesses are, are around for over a decade. Um, yep. 
I think I think the space since then, how how much has the natural foods industry evolved from when you went into it to where it is today? Um, it's absolutely insane. So I can <laughs> kind of share just <laughs> like how much it's changed since we started. And this is probably like really naive of me at the time. Um, but when we uh, got our first barcodes, right? We, we, we didn't know what barcodes were. And so um, we had been, we had been uh, approached by a few stores and they're like, well, you need a barcode. And we're like, well, what the heck is that? And they're like, here, go to this website, buyabarcode.com. And I was like, okay. So went to buyabarcode.com. I bought like, I don't know, 25 barcodes or something. Not knowing anything about buyabarcode.com. Second hand. You didn't go GS1 directly. You just went, boom, let's pick up some barcodes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And also I called the guy from buy a barcode and I was like, are these legit? He was like, they're totally legit. They've been abandoned. They just, they're, you know, they're, they're going to be yours and yours only. And I was like, oh, all right. And he was like, the only thing is you'll never be able to sell, um, use these barcodes in like target and Walmart is what he said. And I was like, well, target and Walmart are never selling our products anyway. Right. And that's oh, how my I got <laughs> so what happened did you like you took those barcodes put them on everything yeah we took those barcodes we put them on and then you know not too long after we were like all right we we think we understand the problem with these barcodes um so we need to get legit ones so that's when we went and got the gs1 barcodes and those products that we put those barcodes on they don't exist anymore so yeah so what and is there a reason target and walmart is they, they just don't accept secondary barcodes just Never heard of that. Yeah, I think you just need to own own the the prefix, and so like if it if it shows up in their catalog or their database, I from my understanding is that it'll show up under a different company's name. You know what I mean? So if it's like got it, liquor or something like that, or Joe's Mops. You know what I mean? It might be like, oh, this says it's Joe's Mops, but it's Emmy's Coconut Cookies. So what's going on here? So. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, you guys are, are crushing it at the farmer's market, you know, selling a ton of these cookies. You're, you're culling down the assortment, figuring out, okay, this is really like our core business. Mm -hmm. How do you transition from DBA, farmer's market manufacturing in your mom's kitchen to where you guys are today, which is, you know, one of the largest uh, companies in that category or products in that, in the, in the baked goods category? Um. All I can say is like a ton of mistakes and a ton of perseverance. Um, you know, we, we've had a long journey, so we've been in business for 12 years. Um, and so, you know, we, we went from making the product in like mom's house, which my mom's name, her nickname is Emmy. So that's where Emmy's comes from. Uh, my Love partner that. and wife, uh, her name's Samantha, but everybody usually just assumes that she's Emmy and calls her right. Emmy. <laughs> He's sort of taking it on as like, sure, I'll be Emmy. Um, so, so my mom, she's always been like our number one cheerleader, big supporter. Um, and also just like a huge support system with like my own health journey, you know, um, yeah. pretty scary moments. Uh, she's always been there. So it was sort of like an homage to her, you know what I mean? Um, and so we started making the product just in mom's house. Um, you know, we had like a dehydrator, which is how we were sort of like cooking the product at the time. Um, we had a dehydrator in the spare bedroom. Um, and we were literally making them in her kitchen, 
dehydrate them in the spare bedroom, pack them in the spare bedroom, and then take them to the different stores. And this was at a time when you could get like a home processor's license in New York, which I don't think you're allowed to do anymore. Um, and we did that for a few months while we were just kind of like, you know, getting our bearings under us and, and figuring out like where we could actually set up shop and stuff. And we moved from mom's house to um, my stepsister's basement. And we started uh, making product out of my stepsister's basement. And that was spaces maybe like 500 square feet. And we pretty much outgrew that in just a few short months. I think we were there maybe like six months or something like that. And was that just farmer's market or did you have a big retailer when that was kind of your anchor account? Uh, no, that was still just farmer's market and some local accounts. Cool. Yep. And then while we were in my stepsister's basement, um, we decided to take a trip down to New York City uh, because I, I knew about all the, the popular health food stores there, the Westerly, Lifetime, Interval Yoga, places like that, um, Palandras, uh, places like that. So we decided to, to take a trip down to um, to New York. And so we approached a bunch of stores. We literally just walked in the door with some product and we were like, will you sell these? And most of the buyers were like, yeah, sure. Send me four cases of each flavor. And we we're like, oh my God, that's uh, a lot of cookies. So... <laughs> So we then started to realize that we may need to move out pretty soon. And um, when we first started selling our product in the stores in New York, uh, we got a call from a broker uh, down there. And we had no idea what brokers do. And so this guy started telling us that he could get us into distributors um, and kind of you know broaden our distribution just in New York at all the bodegas and corner stores and you know random places and stuff like that. And we were like, that sounds great. So, so what's the deal? How do we do it? Yada, yada. And he started to kind of tell us what the numbers could look like. And we quickly realized that we needed to, to move from, from my stepsister's um, uh, basement. So we right. then shifted out of there into um, uh, a small office building that was about 1,200 square feet and renovated that space me and my dad um took it on did the floors did all the you know things that were required for food safety at the time um to get that up to up to snuff and we started producing out of there and i think at that time we maybe hired our first or second employee when we were in there and we were still super small i mean maybe doing like you know 100 or 200 thousand dollars a year or something like that um so it really wasn't much um but during that time, I think it was around 2010, um, we decided to go walk our first trade show. And so we went to Expo East, I believe it was. And we walked the show. And what we noticed from being at the show was that there was a lot of bad products out there that didn't taste that good, but had really nice packaging. And we looked at our product and we said, we sort of have the opposite. We have a really great taking product with really terrible packaging. And so we then decided to do an Indiegogo campaign to try to raise some money to redo our packaging. Um, and we ended up raising like $15,000 or something in 30 days. And we redid our packaging and we did the full rebrand for the coconut cookies. And when we put that into distribution, our sales went up. I think it was like 156% or something pretty wow. much overnight. Yeah. And that was a big like aha moment for us with the business. So when you are meeting with founders day to day and you come across new products, 
what like you probably have a good inkling if something's going to work or not work what mm -hmm. attributes traits or qualities do you look at when you're you know discovering a new product to determine whether you, you think it could work and might it may be successful or not um and how much is that is that dependent on the product versus actually the the team or the person or people behind it um well yeah there's always like many parts um i think to what you know can cause or make success but i think the most important thing is just authenticity that there is some sort of reason behind the being of a brand and be behind the being of sort of like the founders, um, I guess, uh, mission or passion for doing what they do. I think that's like the most important thing, you know, um, yeah. is that there is some sort of like bigger purpose. So like for us with Emmys, it was really to deliver initially to our local community, just a cleaner, healthier, indulgent snack that was also gluten-free and plant-based um, because that's a lifestyle that we were living that I had kind of been pushed into, you know, whether I liked it or not. And um, I felt at the time as a consumer shopping for gluten-free and plant-based that it was almost like I would look at products on the shelves and say, this wasn't made by somebody that has to eat this to live. You know what I mean? This was more. What brands were you? What gluten-free brands were you buying then when it didn't exist? Um. Oh man. Is Back Oots one of them? Or not Oots? Uh, or Udi? No, I wasn't buying Udi's. Um, okay. To be honest with you, like bread wasn't even in like the the uh, the game for me. Like there was no good bread. There was like. I sort of called it like space bread, the stuff that was out because right. it was like <laughs> the list of ingredients is like that, you know? And I was yeah. like, there's no way I'm putting that in my body. Um, so at the time, to be honest with you, I ate a lot of products that were made with rice. So rice milk was like big back then. It was really like one of the only um, dairy-free milks that I enjoyed. So the almond milks back then weren't are what they are today. And a lot of the time, if I had the energy, I would just make my own like sprouted nut milk. Um, and then I would buy like rice cheeses and stuff like that. Um, uh, um, who was around at the time? Um, it was this one raw company uh, that was making some really great stuff. Alive and Radiant. I don't know if you remember Alive and Radiant. They had like kale chips and they were doing some like sort of like faux Oreo stuff. They were doing some really interesting things. Um, but it was very, it was very few brands to be honest with you, which is why I had to make my own recipes at home, you know, it was because half of the stuff that was in the store that was packaged, I didn't want to eat it. And there weren't many gluten-free options. So. Love that. No, right. it, it makes complete sense. And I, and I just, I do remember even like five, seven years ago, looking at the category, I feel like I've seen a lot of gluten-free better for you brands whether they're yeah. cookies or, or whatnot um, yeah. come out, but you guys were really a pioneer in that regard. Um, so the business is growing. Uh, I'm assuming you outgrew that new space that you retrofitted, mm -hmm. by the way, super impressive that you took that on and actually built at like retrofitted an office or a facility. That's incredibly difficult to do. Did you have a background in doing that? Or that was just, mm -hmm. you're like, you know what, let's figure it out. No, I'm, I love that stuff. So I'm, I'm a real nuts and bolts kind of guy. Um, I like getting involved with, with hands-on activities. Um, and also my dad is, is like a master carpenter. 
So um, growing up, I was always around power tools and him building houses and making things. And um, so I, I always just kind of like had that in my blood, I guess. My dad is also a, he grew up as a dairy farmer. Um, and so he kind of instilled on us, me and my brother, a pretty, pretty good work ethic. Um, so we call my dad the Sarge. <laughs> Love that. Love uh, that. So you, so you and the Sarge. Yep. Built out factory V1. I'm assuming commercial uh, baking ovens and everything necessary to make cookies. Um, you know, was there one account, one win or breakthrough that took the business to that next level where you're like, uh oh, um, you know, wh what did you guys end up doing? Yeah, for sure. So it was really like our first Whole Foods region that we got into, which was um, the mid Atlantic region. Surprisingly enough, it wasn't the Northeast. Um, it was the mid-Atlantic region that we got into at first that was kind of like, okay, the business is growing. But then at the same time, like our distributor sales with our DSD guys in New York um, were really starting to grow. And so um, that stuff can be like incredibly impactful on the business because for one, you're not having to deal with UNFI. Um, the other thing is you're not having as, um, I guess like... Uh, the trade spend isn't as gnarly as it can be with the bigger distributors. Yep. And these guys were getting us into like thousands and thousands of counts just in the New York uh, region and especially in New York city. And so that drove a lot of the growth early on. We weren't spending any money on marketing or anything like that. It was really just like the consumer demand um, and word of mouth that grew the business. So um, I can't say that it was any one account early on, that kind of took us to like the next, next level. Um, it was really many accounts um, that were just performing really well that kind of pushed us. Um, but we always had this sort of like mantra when we were in a manufacturing space was, let's cover the walls and then we'll move. But let's not move unless the walls are fully covered. And by that, I mean, there's boxes lining the walls up, 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 ingredients everywhere, like max out the space and then we'll move. And then that's a great segue to my next question, which I think a lot of founders have a tough time kind of approaching, right? Is you're hitting a growth curve. However, you need to basically project your demand and be able to hit the production that's required. However, if you over, um, you know, estimate or, you know, you, you make a huge investment in too yeah. much capacity and you're not utilizing that capacity, you put yourself out of business yeah. separately. You could leave money on the table and opportunity on the table where a competitor could come in. So how did you guys, you know, yes, I love that strategy, cover the walls and then make the next transition. But yeah. I'm assuming that that next bet was a pretty big one and you had a, a large factory because you guys are vertical, which is rare to, yeah. and, and I can relate to that because it's, it's capital intensive. It's a totally different strategy. It has a lot of risk. Yeah. So what was that next level up that you guys ended up doing? Um, well, for us, I should just kind of back up and say we really didn't have time or the knowledge uh, to really, um, I guess, formalize uh, projections. So right. if you came and saw us in like 2011 and 2012 and said, hey, what are your projections for the next three years? We'd kind of look at you with like a blank stare, you know? because we were so busy just keeping up with the current demand um, that we really didn't have time to do all that. I mean, me and Samantha were working probably 16 to 18 hours a day for the first, I'd say like seven years of the business, you know, um, from doing everything from manufacturing ourselves to 
you know, bookkeeping to invoicing to, you know, marketing to design stuff. So everything in between, um, we were, we were kind of all hands on deck with. Um, and for us, we really wanted to kind of hold on to as much equity as possible. We saw that as like the most valuable thing that we could, we could kind of maintain with the business, especially with, um, when it comes to really making the decisions on how we grow and what we do with it and how we run the company. Um, we didn't want somebody else kind of telling us what we should do at the time. So, so from that regard, we really went the bank financing route as opposed to the investor route, you know, because we saw that bank financing as, you know, in the long run, cheaper money. Essentially, you know? Which I don't think is celebrated enough in our industry. And I think that there's, constantly these headlines of 10 20 50 million dollar series a series b series c yeah. and that's really expensive capital and my question to you is did you guys have enough po's inventory how are you able to secure enough financing at a fair enough rate where yeah. it made sense to to make to raise capital and finance the company that way for sure so um our business has always been profitable i think there was like maybe one or two years when we didn't turn a profit, but pretty much since the start, we were always profitable and we always reviewed accounts from the point of view of, is this a profitable account for us? You know? Um, and we never took on anything that was too big. Um, so from that point of view, that's how we were able to get the bank financing at a, a very favorable rate for that matter. And we started small, like we started with our local federal credit union, you know, and we started with them. I think we, we had like a $20,000 loan from them to buy a little small piece of equipment. And then they extended us like a $25,000 line of credit. And then as the business continued to grow, they extended that line of credit to 50K. And then when we outgrew that bank, because their limit was really 50 grand for a line of credit, then we went to a little bit of a, a bigger regional bank. And that regional bank then extended us like a hundred thousand dollar line of credit and they were able to give us a larger loan for i think it was like seventy thousand dollars at the time for us to move out of that office space and into the next facility which was almost seven thousand square feet uh where me and my dad <laughs> put on put on our tool belts and uh got to work renovating that space and I put a budget together for what it would cost to renovate it. And I think I came within a thousand dollars of the renovation costs. That is incredible. Um, <laughs> rare. I, I mean, that's a 7,000 square foot space that you guys renovated yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. And, and I remember my dad was here for like two weeks and he framed out a bunch of rooms and we were just getting busy on the construction. And then he was like, all right, I gotta go back to California. Cause he lives in California. Yeah. Was, well, what am I going to do? He's like, you got this. And so I think I like cried for a day. And then yeah. I was like, all right, let me just knuckle down and get this done. And so with the help of like my brother, some friends that were also in the trade, um, I think it took us like three or four months to renovate the space. It was probably the most miserable, but also educational summer of my life. I swear I didn't stop working for probably 18 hours a day for maybe like five months i think i went swimming once that summer and i forgot to turn a hose off in the facility where i was power washing a floor and i came back and the room had flooded and no so I, and so i told myself um that i'm never gonna leave this facility again until it's done <laughs> holy crap 
that kind of resilience and uh, and grit and dedication is very very rare, but so impressive. So Ian, that's that's amazing. Um, I have to ask a space that large uh, with volumes that you probably were projecting. Yeah. Was there a special kind of equipment or machinery for baking that much product that you needed? Um, I remember I listened to the How I Built This with Stacy's pita chips yeah. about how baking those pita chips was really tough commercially. How yeah. did you figure out how to make enough product yourself? Did you have engineers or people you tapped your resources or? Um, no, not really. We really built our manufacturing based around redundancy. So um, we have these things that are called like forming machines, which, you know, form the cookies. And we had, I think, three of those machines and they could each do anywhere from like, you know, 3000 to 6000 per hour or something. And then we had a bunch of at the time how we were making the product was we were dehydrating it. And so I think we had something like 50 dehydrators in this one room, which is where the, the product was essentially like getting like cooked, for example. Yep. Um, and so that was kind of how we were making the product at the time. And it worked for that facility. Um, and we moved in there, I think it was 2013. And we had, we were making, I don't know, maybe like 5,000 cookies a day or something. We were still like so small. I think we were under a million dollars when we moved into that space. And then when we left that space, which was um, maybe it was five years later, I think five or six years later, um, we were uh, on a run rate for eight figures. Um, wow. And so talk about filling the walls. Um, we had also rented because we couldn't warehouse enough there so we rented a warehouse off site i think we had like maybe 10 or 15,000 square feet of warehouse space that we had rented off site so we were running a truck back and forth picking up finished goods bringing down raw materials um we had probably 30 people working in in that facility at the time and i think we were making somewhere around 80 to 100,000 cookies a day that's unbelievable. How many people were in there? You have, you have a lot, a lot, a lot of factory workers. Um, not a ton. I mean, I think we had like twenty five in there at the time. So it wasn't like it wasn't like too too crazy, but it was. It like if you saw the space, you would have been like, I can't believe you guys did what you did in this in this place. Um, in in like two thousand, well, we we went nationwide with Whole Foods. Like, uh, I can't remember. That was maybe like two thousand sixteen or something. And then in 2017 was when we really got our first like huge, huge um, win, which is when we got into Starbucks um, nationwide. And that really like took the business to like the next, next level. So what I love about your guys' story is, correct me if I'm wrong, you did this all without raising capital from investors. And like, yeah, that is, that is so rare. It just doesn't happen anymore. I mean, it's, there, there are obviously exceptions. Yeah. Um, but that's why I was so excited to share your story on, on stick with your dreams. Yeah. And it just goes to show that with resourcefulness and grit and time, like remember, like to anyone watching 2007, eight, nine, the, the right way to build a business can take over a decade. But now, I mean, you sitting in your seat, Ian, um, you know, you have complete control and ownership. You and, and, and your wife have complete control of your vision, your destiny. 
do you have any regrets on how you built it or, or what you did? Um, no, not at all. Not at all. Because honestly, I feel like for the past decade, I've gotten like a crash course in how to run a business, how to start a business. I feel like I have an MBA at this point um, without having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think you've got a PhD as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so there's no regrets. And even like in addition to just like the education and learning about a business, I think also just like learning about people and how to work with people and how to be like a good employer and be right and um, with people and um, take care of people and how important just like, like fostering a healthy ecosystem in a business is like, you know, I don't think folks think about that as enough. Like I think business can be a very like personal experience, you know, um, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, for me, I always thought the greatest success that I could have or that me and Samantha could have is that if Emmys can live and thrive on its own without us, like that will be the ultimate success, you know? Um, and if we have people that are like stoked to come to work every day and we have a workforce that's, you know, making a living wage and is able to take care of their families working at Emmys and manufacturing, um, that was all always the stuff that I was really passionate about and cared about. Um, the money and the growth is like really fun. That's the exciting stuff. But the stuff that um, I think for me that uh, gets me going, gets me up in the morning is, is all the other things, the working with people, the providing great jobs, the sort of like creative aspect of, of the business. You know what I mean? Um, yeah we tried to never get too distracted with what was happening around us in the industry. Like so-and-so raises X amount of millions, um, things like that, I think can be like a huge distraction. Um, and we never, we never really tried to get too caught up in that side of the business, you know, and really try to focus on what's best for Emmys right now. Um, and, sort of like set our own egos aside and, and just focused on doing us, you know? So the other, the other thing that you mentioned, which I just want to reiterate is profitable accounts. Yeah. Profitable growth, mm -hmm. big financing, alternative financing, as opposed to just raising money and what? just being really strategic with slotting versus, you know, when you raise a lot of money, you have investor expectations every quarter, shareholder expectations. Yeah. Um, you can make aggressive bets that aren't scalable or maybe aren't even profitable. So yeah, super, super, super helpful. And, you know, I want to be cognizant of our time, but the mm -hmm. la last thing I'll ask too is, you know, you mentioned um, the importance of separating yourself from the company, how much joy and, and, and it brings you to, um, you know, really provide jobs for people and create an ecosystem and a community. But like, what is the long-term vision? Where's Emmys in five, 10, 20 years? Um, is it a public company or where, where are you guys focused on growth now um, being such an established, you know, global company? Um, man, that's a great question. And it's definitely something that I sort of ask myself every day. Um, but I think um, just in the future for us is really to just create like a really meaningful and impactful business um, from, you know, our, our consumer experience and also at the same time from our, I guess our team's experience, you know? So um, really for us, it's like to be definitely one of the most well-respected and well-known, um, you know, snack brands in the industry 
is really our goal. Um, you know, Emmys is a B Corp. Uh, that's always been near and dear to our hearts to use business as a force for good. Um, you know, we source solar and wind power for our facility. Uh, we pay all of our workers a living wage. We have a large um, refugee workforce that's in our manufacturing. Um, we care about those people uh, dearly. And so we're always trying to take care of them. That's always something that's been super important to us. So I think as we grow the company, um, you know, in the next five to 10 years is to just continue fostering just a really incredible, incredible business um, with people that are passionate to come to work every day and be one of the biggest, biggest brands in the industry, you know? Awesome. Well, Ian, it's, it's super inspiring. And uh, I really look, you know, look up to you as, as a veteran in the space. Thank you for making the time on a busy Wednesday to, to share your story, but really, really appreciate it. So absolutely. Yeah. It's great to connect with you. Awesome. Ian, have a great rest of your week and uh, thanks again. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon.